Hi guys, this is David Lucarella, your podcast host for Rock Album Analysts. I'm also the writer of the critically acclaimed crime drama comic book, Tinseltown, about one of the first female police officers in the early days of Hollywood. In real life, my mother was a police officer, so Tinseltown is also my tribute to her. Currently, if you go to Indiegogo.com and type in Alterna, you'll come up with the Alterna pre-order campaign, where you can pre-order Tinseltown Losing the Light number 4. And as soon as you add that into your cart, you'll be able to add on all the other issues of Tinseltown to date. Here's a little trailer to give you an idea of what Tinseltown is all about. In 2018, writer David Lucarelli and artist Henry Ponciano brought you the acclaimed period crime drama Tinseltown. Now join Officer Abigail Moore for her second adventure in Tinseltown, Losing the Light. 1916, Hollywood. Officer Abigail Moore is back on the lot. What did I miss? There's been some accidents. And action! Look out! Hey, you! Stop! I'd say you got a mole in Utopia. What can I say? I believe in living a life without limits. <laughs> I had a friend who believed in the same thing. Yeah? How'd that work out? It didn't. That's a wrap, people. We're losing the light. They want to ban all their films. We're weeks away from not being able to make payroll and the sharks smell blood in the water. The flickers corrupt our youth. 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 That's enough. Extra, extra war in Europe. I have a proposition. A chance to save the studio. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Tell me something. Do you consider yourself a German? Or an American first? Trust no one. Keep an eye out for anything suspicious. And watch your back. I killed my wife. I watched the light go out of her eyes. Just think what I'm going to do to you. Tensile Town, Losing the Light, the five-issue limited series from Alterna. Issue four coming soon. Once again. To order Tinseltown, go to Indiegogo.com and type in Alterna, A-L-T-E-R-N-A, and the Alterna pre-order campaign will come right up. And if you want to sample some of Alterna's other great indie comics titles, you can get 10 comics for only 30 bucks. And now, on to our regularly scheduled podcast. <music>
Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your semi-weekly regular podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each time. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavin. And today we're going to be talking about the final to date Guns N' Roses full length studio album, Chinese Democracy. So Guns N' Roses takes a little break after Spaghetti Incident. And about 15 years later, in 2008, they finally released the follow-up record. The only original member left in the band is Axl Rose, who gets producer credit along with Karam uh, Costanzo. Although this album was recorded with many musicians, many producers, and 14 or 15 different uh, recording studios, mostly around L.A. And it's the kind of thing where... If you didn't play on this album and you're at all involved in the L.A. music scene, either you know somebody that had something to do with the recording of this album or you know somebody who knows somebody because uh, everybody worked on this record from, you know, original producer Michael Clink to Bob Ezrin to... Uh, Roy Thomas Baker to Tom Zutout. I mean, this album was a long, long time in the making and the remaking and the re-remaking. Um, if you look into the history of how this album was recorded, it was recorded at least once, <laughs> completely in the can, and then completely re-recorded after Axel made the current lineup completely re-record Appetite for Destruction just to kind of get them <laughs> in the G&R mood. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, they replaced drum parts and guitar parts, and, I mean, guys like Brian May contributed solos to this record that ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, that was I the mean, weirdest part, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy if you if you look at the history of this record, but um, that's what we're going to attempt to do. So, all right, Chinese democracy. Um, anything you guys want to say about it in general before we just jump in track by track? No, there's nothing. I mean, no, nothing overall. Like we were talking about how it's sort of hard to parse the album out into different songs. Um, and I think some of that is uh, due to the fact that we're probably not familiar with it. You know what I mean? A lot of times you'll get a new album by a band and you'll it'll all sort of sound the same because and then as you listen to it more and more, it starts to differentiate out. But this I can honestly say the three times I listened to it in the last three weeks, which is usually a lot less than when I listen to these albums are the only three times I've ever heard this album at all. Um so it just doesn't, uh -huh. you know what I mean? So it's really coming at it blank, you know? There were no... Yeah. Yeah, there were no singles or anything. I mean, I guess there were singles. I never heard them. So I don't know. All right, so yeah, go ahead. Let's go track by track unless, Mike, you got something. No, no, let's, we'll go track by track. That's cool. 
Okay. I mean, the only other thing you could say about it is it's it's kind of difficult to think about this album without divorcing it from uh, the process of how it was made. And a lot of people thought this record would never come out. You know, it cost, depending on where you read, somewhere between 12 and $13 million to make, uh, which makes it the most expensive rock record ever produced. Um, you know, so it, it, in some ways, the most remarkable thing about this album is that it ever came out. Yeah, it was a it was a Best Buy exclusive. Um, Rolling Stone magazine actually reviewed an earlier version of the album that didn't come out, and then they refused to do a full length review of the final version of the album that came out. So that's kind of oh, really, huh? Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, but anyhow, were, also through their versions, they were leaked. Uh, right yeah, yeah there were a ton of leaks uh <laughs> yeah many songs and many different versions of this album were leaked and it's still unclear exactly what the thought process behind that was because um there were lawsuits about the leaks and some of the people that leaked it actually were convicted and given house arrest for two years and find a lot of money and then other leaks just sort of seemed they they just let them go by and may have even been intentional on part of the record company mm. axel rose sued the record company for five million dollars you know about the leaks saying that it hurt the sales of the album of course he also refused to do any publicity for the album too yeah. which might have hurt sales as well who knows you know um and apparently too one of the labels uh, that i guess you know that were, were handling the band i guess they they basically said you know we're going to stop funding this record i mean they basically said we're done <laughs> yeah at a certain point i mean at a certain point geffen was playing ball and they said we'll give you a million dollars to finish making it and an additional million dollar bonus to Axel if he finishes it by a certain date. And uh, he didn't finish it and he blew by that date. And at, at a certain point, they said, if you want to finish this record, you have to do it out of your own pocket. We're not spending any more money on this record. So that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other story. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think part of the problem was that Axel was kind of erratic in the work hours that he kept and so what they would do is they would keep major recording studios simply on hold 24 hours a day with a producer and engineer ready to go and uh, you know with the hope that sometime at any given moment axel might come in and actually do something and sometimes he did but there were long periods where they were just you know eating 75 grand a month to hold these studios and you know uh yeah not not the most efficient way to make a record so no. first first track chinese democracy uh i liked the opening i liked the super solid state sort of new metal riff uh you know what i mean um that that sort of brings it out it's very it's very digital, you know what I mean? There's not a lot of air around it. It's just very like that, uh, which sounded like the metal of the time, I guess. Very um, crunchy guitar tone. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. I always call it the super, I always call it the solid state sound because it's real, um, sounds like glass is breaking. It doesn't have like a warm tone to it. It's like all electronics, no tubes. I could be wrong. That might not be the best way to explain it. Um, 
And then I wrote down here, what the fuck is this song about, actually? <laughs> is this really a critique of China? And then I, yeah, that's it. I, I mean, it was, I, I'm interested, is this Buckethead playing on, on guitar on this? Like, I don't know. Uh, on, on some of it, I think the first solo is Robin Fink, which, you know, I think his tone is one of the prevailing things on this record. It's, you know, if there's, if you want to find some sort of soul or some warmth, on, on this record, it's 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 Robin's tone. You know, that's my sort of prevailing thing that stands up to me and you know touches me in a way. But um, yeah, Buckethead's on this record too. But I think Robin's tone is the thing that just you know gives some some soul and some warmth, which is great. Well, the solos are definitely like weird in this album. They're not slash solos. They're they're no. They're more chaotic, and in some cases that's kind of good, and sometimes that's kind of stupid. Yeah, they're oftentimes very technically over the top. I think Buckethead at some points is using a fretless guitar, and so he's playing all kinds of sort of in-between notes and quarter tones and incredibly um, intricate ways, which is an interesting sound that you don't hear very often in other rock guitar. Um, no, but, the, but, but there are also some things that, that are sort of reminiscent <laughs> of early um, you know, Guns albums, I think. You've got that sort of classic uh, Axel Howl at the beginning, you know, which is cool. Um, you've got this sort of dual, like, you know, high octave, low octave, you know, vocal that he's doing in the verse. It's very, it's so easy in a way. Um, yeah. I think the chorus, you know, it, it, it's a catchy melody. Um, but, you know, it's funny, John, you mentioned the guitar tone on, on the rhythm part. Scene. For me, that's the thing that turned me off straight away with this record because, you know, I look for records that have some sort of, you know, warmth or tone or soul. And that sound to me does not appeal to me. You know, it's like, you know, at the same time, too, it's a sound that has been established. And at this point, it's right, really, it's it, already it, exactly. It's a sound that sounds like the music of now. You yeah, know what I mean? And that was sort of what is nice about at least Appetite for Destruction. It is its own sound. It, it stands timeless. You know, yeah. And, and it's there's not, nothing, there's, to me, there's nothing worse than like, you know, your, your favorite artist, you know, seeing them chase, you know, some sort of trend or something, and they've already dated themselves because it's already been done. You know, I like my art, my favorite artists are the ones that blaze their own trail and come up with their own sound. You know, don't like right. chasing sort of trend and, you know, you use some tone that's already been, you know, used like a year, a year ago, you know? Um, I, yeah. You know. I mean, clearly Axel was getting way into industrial. And, yeah. and so the, the tones on this record, the guitar tones are oftentimes the distorted guitar tones that like a nine inch nails would use. Right. Um, this, the riff that's in this song was actually written by the drummer. And there's an interview where he refers to it as like a big, dumb rock guitar riff, you know, and I think that's part of the problem is that very frequently when industrial does incorporate rock guitars it sort of distills them down into very primitive basic repetitive stanzas you know i mean it's usually literally some guy cutting up a sample in pro tools and you know making it into something that it's not and so now you have axel trying to write songs that are imitating somebody else cutting up like guys like Guns N' Roses guitar licks yeah. and turning them into riffs, you know, and, and it's sort of like the, the dog chasing its own tail, you know. Um, yeah. I remember hearing this song when they played it live for the first time and thinking like, it's cool to hear a new Guns N' Roses song, but, you know, it didn't work for me live. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that's a problem with a lot of the material in general on this record is this was not songs that they were playing in front of a live audience or testing out in clubs mm. because you know as well as I do, you can write or record at home in your bedroom or on a computer and think you've got the greatest song in the world, but you don't really know how an audience is gonna relate to it or if they're gonna relate to it until you play it live in front of somebody. And you know that's, that's the moment of truth when suddenly the song that you thought was great like everybody's getting up to go get a drink or something and you're like, uh Oh, you know? Yeah. yeah. So like, I think overall and including this song, these songs all feel like very much studio creations that were never played before a live audience of anyone. Agreed. This sounds like someone playing in a studio album, which is not yeah. necessarily wrong. You know what I mean? But it doesn't, it just. Yeah. And also, in, in addition, you know, I think, you know, if you look at the number of years that they're working on this record, I mean, you know, timeliness is key when it comes to, you know, if you're in the moment, you're writing some songs and you want to put out an album, like, get it done. You know, Black Crows recorded Southern Harmony and Musical Companion like in eight days, you know, and that album sounds like that, <laughs> but it's a great album and there's soul there and it's 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 complete album from beginning to end. This, you can almost hear like the you know, the edits and the, you know, it's almost like the vocal tapes are different from, from different eras. It's, it's a very disjointed mm. mix in a way. And I think, you know, you, you can almost spend too much time on a record in a way and it, you kind of come up, come back with diminishing returns, you know? Well, there's a saying that records are never done. They're mm. just released. You yeah. know, and yeah. and I think the problem is Axel essentially had infinite time and infinite money to make this record. And he's a perfectionist. And the longer that he waited, the greater the pressure was to make the greatest record ever made. You know, it's like the longer time you have between anything, the higher the pressure is. If it's been mm. 10 years since your band has played a gig, that first gig better kick ass. You know, if it's been 15 years since your band's put out an album, you don't want to put, you know, it, you don't want to put out a mediocre album, but that in itself is so much pressure. I think it, 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 kind of inhibits the creative process. Yeah, I, I think too, it's, it's a very introspective record in a way. And I think maybe that's where Axel, you know, in, you know at all you know, we're going with this record, but there were bands, you know, like Boston that, you know, they did an album in 78 and they didn't put another record out until 1986 or 87. Uh, Def Leppard had the, you know, three or four year, you know, layover between uh, Pyromania and Hysteria because of, you know, all the issues they were going through with you know, car crashes and, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, but, you know, when Boston came back in 86, 87, that album was a hit. Those are still good songs. Right. When Hysteria came out, there were a ton of hits in that record. You know what I mean? Maybe that's what they're going for. I think on this record, Axel might have been saying, I'm just going to write the record the way I want it to be, and that's you're going like, to like it or you're not, and that's it. But, you know, there's really no hit on this record. It wasn't meant to be one of those, like, you know, chart-topping successes in a way. It, it seems like a very personal kind of statement but it's also so overworked and so overproduced that it's, it's kind of very taxing on the listener because it's it, it's not a fun album to listen to at all yeah you're not I you're mean, not gonna put this record on and, and make dinner for your spouse or girlfriend or it's like one of those things like whoa man i gotta i gotta you know i gotta focus on this thing otherwise you know it's it's not gonna work you've, you've got to right. give it your full attention and you know that works in a way but at the same time it's it's just there's a lot to digest but does that make for, you know, uh, you know, a hit, a hit song record? Probably not. 
Right, which there's the dichotomy. The record industry was looking for this record to save the record industry. Yeah. And, you know, Tom Zutout suggested to Axel, you should put this out as a solo album because it's so, such a personal statement. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, I don't... <clears throat> which is not to say that it's not good. I mean, yeah. Axel sounds great on this album. And I think even when he gets into those very high registers that sometimes sounded very grating on the, on the ears uh, on previous albums, mm -hmm. it's recorded in such a way that it, it, it really works and everything is orchestrated and arranged in a very tasteful yet supportive way. So, you know, there, there are good things to say about that in terms of what the song is actually about, <laughs> you know, so many of the lyrics on this album are so vague as to be open to wildly different critical interpretations. I do think that on one hand, this song is intended to be on some level a criticism of the Chinese government. And that's simply based on the fact that Axel apparently lived in China for three months and he was taken aback by how scared the people that he met were of expressing their own opinions about the government and mm -hmm. how how um, censored the news was that they were seeing things like that. Um, it was b banned in China because it was considered an anti-Chinese government song. Um, the, the interesting reference is that he references the Falun Gong, right? Right. Um, the Falun Gong is a group of kind of like meditative, philosophical Tai Chi people. Yeah, it's like a Tai Chi cult, but it's not even cult. A... Yeah, it it's was originally- a cult, but I, they, they used to, yeah, whatever. Sorry, go ahead. You'll probably explain it better than me. Well, they were originally supported by the Chinese government, and then at a certain point, the Chinese government turned on them and arrested and killed a lot of them. And uh, there's there's remnants of them all around the world. They're actually, you know, that that show that tours around America, Xinjiang or whatever. Oh, yeah, Xinjiang, yeah, Chinese yeah. Mm -hmm. Xinjiang, yeah. yeah, with the Chinese dancing. They're affiliated with it. Um, and actually, in the United States, this group is considered like a far right wing group. But I mean, mm. they're considered to the left of the Chinese government. I guess it's all sort of relative. <laughs> but you know, so so for that line alone, you have to think that this is on some level a criticism of the Chinese government. The other thing is, Obviously, Guns N' Roses music was never legally allowed in China, much like it was never legally allowed in Russia. And yet, um, Guns N' Roses had Chinese fans and Russian fans and stuff. So I think kind of what he's trying to say is, look, the positive freedom parts of America and democracy uh, will come to China eventually because look, they're spray painting Guns N' Roses uh, graffitied on the wall on the back of this album cover. And even the most repressive iron-fisted government can only hold back the will of the people for so long, you know. Does he actually come out and say that directly in the song? Not so much, mm -hmm. but that's giving him some of the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. It, again, the lyrics are too big to really grab that. That was the only problem. Yeah, I mean, that's the best I got. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, but also, too, in, ter in terms of packaging, like, you know, this is 
you know, years after, you know, when you we get like your know, appetite for destruction, you see the cover, it's cool. And so it's like a you know, comic book, you know, kind of cover, and you got the, the cool picture of the guys in the back of the record. And like that, you're like, oh, that's what a rock band looks like. When you get this thing, what am I looking at? I mean, it's like, you know, a bicycle and some graffiti in the background. And, you know, like, where's the, where are the cool guys? Where's the coolness of this album? It, it's just, this doesn't seem like something I want to rush home and listen to in a way. Well, it's obviously he's he, this is his magna opus. He's trying to be bigger than he is with this one. He's trying to say that he's an artist this time because he's, you know what right. I mean? I, yeah. and it it like is that. a grandiose, majestic artistic statement, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Um, there were originally supposed to be two other covers to this record and each like edition of the album was supposed to have completely different pictures and liner notes and mm. and words inside and everything. That fell by the wayside. They actually, the third cover, I think, has a hand grenade on it, was never released. Mm. The second cover was released as part of Garage Band or Guitar Hero or something. And then they actually, they pressed up like some rare um, copies of the second edition for um, like publicity handouts to radio stations and stuff. But yeah, yeah that's a whole, whole other story that, you know, the, somehow Axel's grandiose plans for the three covers, you know, got... Uh, screwed up somehow. Well, can I also make a point too? Because <laughs> this this album is very kind of troubling in in, in a lot of ways. Troublesome. Um, you know, here's a band that came across as like the ultimate rock and roll band. You know, uh, of the '80s in a way. You know, they they were cool like the Stones and Aerosmith, and they were you know that in the '80s. And you know, there were bands uh, much like Steely Dan. You know that you know if you look at their album covers, like there's never a picture of those guys on the, on the album cover. You know, because oh, the reason is because you know, with all due respect, Steely Dan wasn't really a band. It was you know some songwriters and ever-changing lineup of, of musicians. You know, if you look at the liners of this thing, there are tons of guys that are playing on this record. Like they weren't ever really quote unquote a band. You know, except for the yeah. fact that they were playing in a studio together and trying to you know put out this record. And, that's one of the shortfalls because, you know, you can, again, it really, like you said, Dave, you know, it should have been an actual solo record because it's really just, you know, a, a, a project that was, you know, following the vision of one guy with like a bunch of other guys in, in the background. And, you know, that's fine if you want to do a solo record, but if you want to make a band record, that's not going to work in this situation. I think that's one of the shortfalls of this record. Slash made an interesting comment about this record, which is this is not a record that the original Guns N' Roses lineup could have made. So Hmm. if this is the record that Axel wanted to make, then it's a good thing that he didn't make it with us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I I, I bring this up too, not just to, you know, know, to sort of criticize the record, it's just a matter of, you know, it's a singular vision. And it just doesn't sound like a band record. And that's, you know, I think there's a lot of great chord changes. There's, you know, there's, some of the melodies are great too, but overall, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just so overproduced and it just seems like it's recorded in different time periods. And that doesn't really serve, you know, these songs that well. But I'm sure we'll get into that to go through the, the rest of the tunes. Yeah. Okay. Second track, yeah, second. <laughs> Shackler's Revenge. Uh, I wrote down, it says it's very 90s sounding. It's got that nice harmony on the chorus or whatever. Um, again, the as I wrote, crazy new sounding new metal solo, but kind of not so great because it doesn't make any sense. Again, the song doesn't make any sense. The solo didn't make any sense. There's a lot of um, 
I don't even know how to musically say this. There are a lot of bridges in these songs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's a lot mm -hmm. of like space between chorus and verse that is sometimes kind of pretty interesting. I mean, it's almost like borderline Prague-esque, but uh, never all the way through. You know what I mean? I, I, yeah. I tried to notate that every time I saw it, but there's a lot of very short bridges between things that I was kind of, you know, that aren't the riff, aren't the... Uh, chorus aren't the verse you know what i mean and i think this is the first time i sort of heard that so but again th these fucking solos man i mean i sort of like them and i sort of kind of hate them so mike what do you think uh, yeah i mean you know I'll, I'll try to get beyond the you know I, I mentioned before i'm not a fan of industrial you know type guitar tone stuff i mean it's been done you know it, you know like guns sounds like guns and industrial sounds like industrial and, and the two really in my opinion don't need to mix you know, but you know, if but funny too, like you know, Robin Fink, he was he played with Nine Year Stamp, right? Which, yeah, which is really he was, yeah. uh, in the touring in the touring band, band. Yeah. yeah. So, but the thing is, I think his tone is like the warmest tone on this record, which is funny because, like, you know, coming from where you know where he, where he came from, you would expect that. But I don't know. I just, yeah, even like down to the, the chorus of this song, it reminds me of something uh, that maybe White Zombie would have released. Like the melody sounds familiar, and like the, the guitar solos too. I think the cool, if you want to call it that, cool guitar solos are Robin Fink, but the, the, the you know, the out there solos are the ones that um, Buckethead does. It's like the way they pedal and, you know, the, the weird, like, you know, semitones and stuff. I mean, that's, those are the solos that are, if you want to call it, you know, unsettling or annoying you know i don't want to be mean but you know but it, yeah it's like it's, it's just it's so over the top unnecessarily over the top in a way um you know anytime you have to like put on a bunch of effects that you know come come across as a guitar solo and you know it's like the cgi of, of the music world like you know give me some give me something real you know don't don't give me you know acrobatics on guitar give me something that says something you know yeah yeah, yeah. So Shackler's Revenge <laughs> was. I tried looking up the name Shackler, couldn't even figure it out, so I have no idea. Okay, well, so apparently this song is supposed to be about uh, the fact that the Virginia Tech shooter, at some point before he was the Virginia Tech shooter, uh, was a Guns N' Roses fan, and he wrote a play that was inspired by the Guns N' Roses song, Mr. Brownstone. And so, you know, Guns N' Roses, you know, much the way Marilyn Manson and other people have caught flack of like, oh, you know, this this person that did this crazy thing was a fan of this artist. Is, or, is this artist the reason why they did this crazy thing? You know, and uh, obviously that's absurd, but... Um, you know, because I mean, how many other 14 million people that bought Appetite and didn't become the Virginia Tech shooter? Um, but okay, so so this is Axel kind of, I think, grappling with uh, the fact that you know Guns N' Roses was catching some flack and and mass shootings in general were just then beginning to become a thing and and kind of dealing with the horror of that and saying essentially there is no reason uh why somebody does that you can't blame an individual or a song um to make somebody do something that crazy which is probably true although it's interesting there's a later song in which he sort of plays devil's advocate and takes the opposite side of this argument so mm. 
you know, in some ways, I think he's he's dealing with the fact that, you know, true art can be incredibly inspirational in both a positive and a negative way. And yet at the same time, it's not fair to blame the artists for, uh, you know, th these kinds of acts that somebody might commit. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Enough. Okay. I mean, again, am I right? I don't know. <laughs> um, third song, better. Um, okay, do you guys know who Devin Townsend is? Yeah. The way that, do you know Devin Townsend? Okay, so the opening sound, it sounds that with the way his vocals come in with that super, I mean, Axel has never sound, sounded um, better than in, in like a few of these songs. Like there's definitely like, He's hitting higher notes and all that kind of stuff. And for some reason, the first thing that popped into my head was um, Devin Townsend with the way the vocals came in and the power behind it. But then it didn't carry out like a Devin Townsend song. You know what I mean? It just, but I'm almost wondering because Devin Townsend is also someone who sort of fools around with like the industrial sound and the, hmm. you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. I'm wondering if he, he was aware of him. It's not a Devin Townsend song, you know, because it's not, you know, I think it's just kind of a silly love song or whatever. Um, but it was kind of interesting that I heard that there. Again, nothing really, I mean, I liked his vocals in it, like his vocals really are strong in it, but nothing else, you know, I wouldn't download this song to be on a playlist for anything. So Mike, what do you think? Um, again, I try to get beyond the loops and the stuff because it just seems so dated right out of the gate. Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we play like the you know, guitar chords, if I get to like it was you know, the fourth underneath the, you know, the major chord. I mean, they, you know, that's been done too. It, it was so overused at that point. Um, but, you know, it also too, one of the things that, that, you know, that sort of stood out to me was um, some of the vocal melodies remind me of Hollow Notes in a way. I don't know. Like, like, hmm. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, I'm, I'm looking for some soul here and I'm kind of hearing that here and there, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, you Again, you really have yeah. to listen to this record and try to listen through the, the samples and the loops and the effects and you know, listen to the chord changes and listen to the melodies. And that, that's where you find the good stuff in this record. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, there seems to be like a good, I mean, the lyrical stuff is actually kind of, he's giving advice to a younger Axel, it seems like. Yeah, but yeah, good. To me, this is actually uh, this is probably my favorite song on the record okay. because I think it's a little less vague. I mean, there's a lot of songs on this record where he seems to be talking to the, you know, ubiquitous you woman mm. who he who has broken his heart, who has betrayed him, who has enraged him and made him sad that. And now the relationship is over and, you know, he, but he would like to, you know, still think about her, but he doesn't feel the same way because she's no longer who she was to him. And, you know, I mean, he's clearly obs incredibly obsessive about one or two women in his life and what might've been and mm -hmm. what went wrong along the way. Um, and but this is at least one of those songs where I, I feel like there's some clever wordplay, you know, mm. now I know you better, you know, I know better is kind of a, a clever bit of wordplay. For sure. Um, yeah. And it's it's a catchy song. I don't think it's trying to do too much. I don't think it's trying to make any grand political statement or sweeping 
philosophical treatise or anything. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I understand what he's talking about in this song and, you know, and I feel like he's expressing it well kind of makes me think this is one of the stronger songs on the record. I agree. Yeah. Okay. I'll buy that. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it is the, I mean, I, I didn't mind it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but again, I don't necessarily mind anything on this album, but nothing also stands out to me. You know what I mean? That's the big problem. I think you could take any song on this record and listen to it by itself and, and, and say, well, that's a good song. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, uh -huh. yeah. But at the same time, like, it, 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 you know, to try to single out one song as being a great song, it's mm. tough. It is tough. Um, mm. Street of Dreams. Uh, Elton John-esque, big 70s vibe, almost yacht rock. Uh, this is the first time I heard, because I'm, I'm a big... Um, I'm a big replacements fan, and I, I thought it was hysterical that Tommy Stinson, right. who is the world's most chaotic bass player, because he joined the, the he joined the replacements when he was like 14, and then dropped out of high school at 15 to tour with the replacements. Um, this is the first time I hear Tommy Stinson play bass, and it's kind of a pretty generic fill, which is annoying because if you ever listen to him play on any of the replacements albums, his stuff is. It's all, he's so self-taught that he's, you know what I mean? Like he just doesn't, um, he's all over the place. And sometimes mm -hmm. it works really well and sometimes it doesn't. And I was really, that's one of my disappointments in this album is that I wasn't ever really able to hear, you don't really hear Tommy Stinson. And when he finally comes out, mm -hmm. uh, it's just for a kind of generic fill or whatever. Um, but that, that was really all that stuck to me. Lyrically, it's, you know, whatever. It's another, you know, I'm Axel and I'm, Whatever. I don't even want to talk about it lyrically. It's not even worth it. I The big thing for me was finally hearing Tommy Stinson. You know what I mean? So, you know, because he's, he played, I don't know. I don't know if that's the most fascinating thing to me is was Axel, because I, I almost imagine Tommy Stinson being slightly afraid to be in Guns N' Roses because the replacements were literally this band that was right on the edge of making it always they were always going to be the next big thing and they never were and tommy stinson was also the youngest member of the band joining when he was 14 mm. um so i sometimes wonder if he was just like better not fuck this up better not fuck this up this is a good gig <laughs> you know what i mean like because at yeah. that point the you know the replacements had broken up you know and all that kind of stuff and he was mm. you know whatever so that's actually something that kind of um that was more of what I was thinking about in this song was like, what would have been like, because, you know, I love the replacements. They're like one of my favorite bands. Um, and so just, you know, when you finally get to hear him and all he does is like do a doo, 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 you know what I mean? You're like, come on, Tommy, you can do that. Do that weird slide thing you do in Alex Chilton, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Like it's, mm -hmm. I don't know. So that's what stood out to me is actually realizing that Tommy Simpson was on the album and how, how much stress he must've been under to be in the band like that. So go ahead, Mike, your thoughts. That, that's a great point, John, because, you know, for me, when I hear the bass playing on this record, I, I hear a lot of uh, Duff McKagan-type riffs and Duff McKagan tones, you know? Mm. So if there was, you know, somebody saying, you know, you need to sound like this, you know, that's not the way Duff would have played it, or you know, maybe that was going on there, because yeah. that came across. It definitely doesn't sound like Tommy Stinson. It sounds like Duff McKagan on this uh -huh. record, you know? 
you know, what's yeah, he I'm wondering if they'd sort of directed him, you know, who knows? Yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I think you know, this is probably one of my favorite records, on, one of my favorite songs on the record, only because of the things that it reminds me of. You've already mentioned like the Elton John thing, it reminds me of Lee Vaughn, and uh, it also reminds me of Journey, you know, with the, the sort of you know, piano chord, you know, guitar chord, yeah, it, it, it's cool stuff. I mean, but also sonically reminds me of uh, the song yesterday from the illusion records mm. um, and then even like the outro mix with like the uh the, the heavy reverb on you know the vocal effects and stuff that reminds me of uh, uh the journey record infinity uh there's a couple songs like uh, something to hide and laundry dog where they just kind of crank up the you know the reverb at the end and it kind of fades out it, these are cool production you know effects and it's a little bit maybe too technical for people to get into but also too i like the um the verse uh, one of my favorite Three Dog Night songs is a song called uh, Into My Life on the Cyan record. And the, the verse is very reminiscent of, of that song. And I dig that. So for me, I like the song for what it reminds me of, you know, uh, you know, of songs on other, you know, albums from artists that I appreciate um, and enjoy. Yeah, it's worth noting this song has actually become a live staple for the band. Um, and I think it probably does work well because it's got those big massive almost like brian may queen like guitar chords in the orchestration that really play well in arenas mm -hmm. and uh you know um there's some interesting lyrics i think you know axel uh, is kind of returning to the lyric theme of of the discrepancy between you know the paradise that you think your your life should be once you've achieved all of your dreams and the reality of all of the problems and frustrations that that are still uh, a part of your life despite that so you know i i, I like the uh the imagery when he when he says i know it's called the street of dreams but that's not stardust on my feet mm. it leaves a taste that's bittersweet that's called the blues you know that's kind of eloquent and you, you know colorful use of imagery yeah. um so yeah. I, I I dig it again. Probably my one of my two favorite songs on this record. Hmm. Okay. All right, uh, let's see here. Moving on. <laughs> if the world. Oh uh, yeah, if the if world. The world. All right, uh, I kind of dig the um, the little Spanish guitar thing in the beginning, or almost Middle Eastern thing. It goes to sort of like a. Um, Almost, it reminds me of a Peter Gabriel, that do 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 do. You know what I mean? The way that it sounds, it mm. sounds a lot like mid '90s Peter Gabriel, which would make sense because Peter Gabriel at that time. Although I, I am basing this song on like digging in the dirt from the late '90s or oh, mid '90s. Yeah. Um, it's got that kind of feel to it. Of course, the the riff from Peter Gabriel is a little more complicated, but it's um. Hmm definitely sounds like it um and it's um i said lyrically it's kind of dumb but interesting effects with the bridge the la 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 this is another song that has a lot of little mini bridges and sound tricks in it um but i like his vocal a lot too uh, again this is another one of those axel things where you're like i didn't realize you could sing that well um <clears throat> or at least sing that uh fully I guess the way to put it, um, but it is interesting that it it has that like new. It's not even new metal sound. It's almost like a a '90s funk sound or whatever, white boy funk sound, Peter Gabriel kind of stuff. You know what I mean? 
So it's yeah. musically, it was pretty interesting. But again, lyrically, I was, I don't, most of this stuff is kind of whatever, lyrically. I, I have no idea what it's talking about. So go ahead, Mike, what do you think? Uh, to me, the thing that stood out for this song was I uh, like the fact that it reminded me of the, the David Essex song, uh, Rock On. You know, the, the main riff just you know, reminds me. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right? Yeah, you know, which, uh -huh. you know, that's cool. It's like it's sort of the tip of the half of that, and I can appreciate that. And whether that was intentionally, I can't verify. But uh, again, I just try to get beyond the, the loops and the, you know, the synth bass and stuff. You know, to me, that's, just, you know, it's it's been done. <laughs> yeah, I, I personally think if, if you would, you re-record this album now, you know, it would come across in a better way. You know, it would be more of a, of a presentation, not so much like effects-laden, um, you know, instrumental arrangements. You know, it's, it, it, I think these songs, there's a lot more to these songs that deserve attention, but you don't get that because you're sort of fighting your way through these loops and synth things and effects. Well, and, the, the, it, the songs are incredibly orchestrated. Yeah. But you just don't want to go back and listen to them again. Because the lyrics are so dumb, they just don't stand out to you. Well, all, I, I think know. part of the problem too. I mean, it's, not the, it's a problem, but you know, Dave or John, you tell me. Like, there are so many times when you listen to these vocals and it sounds so edited, like so pieced together. Mm. You know, like I mean, Dave, you, especially you know, because this is your your career and your living. Like, there are some edits on this record where there's like the vocal sound is completely different from one line to the next in a verse. Uh -huh. you know, it, it sounds like it was cut like four years ago and all of a sudden we cut this vocal today and that's what you got. It's right. very disjointing in a way. Yeah. Um, Axel said that he was trying to kind of write a sort of theatrical, almost like James Bond theme kind of song with this. Hmm. And like that the chorus was almost intentionally meant to be a little cheesy. Um, I think if, you know, if that's what he was trying to do, he arguably achieves that with this song. I don't, you know, I don't know that that's such a great thing to do, but I mean, it, it's okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's a quote from keyboardist Chris Pittman, who uh, co-wrote the song, says, it's about environmental decay in its futurist context. Hmm. Okay. okay, I mean, you, you know, I mean, the song mentions the end of the world, so I guess they're... they're could you could read that in there i guess i don't know it doesn't really you know again john's right these legs these lyrics are also vague and nondescript that you could read practically anything into many of these songs and and you know i it, make a case for it yeah exactly i don't understand what they're trying to uh, this is the great axel rose you know you should have a little more moments of cleverness in here than you actually do Right. And I, th I think part of it, you know, there was the perception at the time that Axel was kind of the Howard Hughes of rock and roll, right? Like, yeah, 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 totally. Nobody ever saw him. He was just this weird eccentric guy who was probably living in a palatial mansion somewhere in Los Angeles and doing weird things. And, you know, whether or not that's true or whether Axel just, you know, went out of his way to avoid publicity and wanted to live his life quietly during this period. I don't know. I know that he talks about there were several years that he stopped writing and stopped playing during the making of this record. Um, I remember somebody ran into him at like Gil Turner's liquor store where all, all the rock stars go on, on Sunset Boulevard. And, you know, this was like some young rock and roller just coming from a gig and 
you know, Axel was very nice to him and stopped and talked to him and was very friendly and encouraging and gave him advice and wished him the best of luck and couldn't have been more down to earth or nice. So, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to say where the perception is and where the reality is when, you know, nobody was really seeing this guy, like give any interviews or be out in public for years and years until this record came out. Yeah. 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 I don't know. There's also too a great line from you know, Bruce Springsteen where I think one of those his songs, the lyrics is, you know, a, a life of leisure and a pirate's treasure don't make much for tragedy in a way. You know, I mean, like you can have, you know, all the riches of the world and, you're going to try to make this grand statement about things and, you know, does it come across in, in the songs? You know, it's almost like they're, it, it just seems like they're just trying a little too hard for this record in a way, you know? Right. Well, I think one of the problems in rock and roll is that when bands first start out, they have a lot in common with their fans because they're, you know, usually coming from lower middle class backgrounds mm -hmm. and you know they're they're you know they're trying to survive and stuff and then the problem is once they achieve success and especially massive success then they really don't necessarily have a whole lot in common with their fans in terms of their day-to-day -day life experience i mean the rolling stones kind of made fun of that like in uh what's that rich uh that blues song about oh my butler quit and oh uh you know what i'm talking yeah, about yeah, uh... Yeah. Shoot. Oh, I can't think of the song. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, so, so, you know, I, I don't know that Axel is that relatable as, as a songwriter on this record. I mean, he's, he's thinking about things that affect people in terms of gun violence and things like that and 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 politics i mean certainly his worldview and his perspective and the things that he's thinking about seems to have grown uh, an appreciable amount since the appetite for destruction days but um yeah isn't he in therapy this whole time yeah i think he probably is i think so um anyhow there was a time um there was a time it sounds uh, it starts like it sounds like sort of almost like power metal, like a Dio song kind of, but it definitely awkward chorus. Again, this has this weird little, um, these weird little bridges in it. You know what I mean? Mm. Little musical interludes, I guess. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it just, I wrote not bad, just who cares? That was my final word on it. Like, it's not a bad song again, but it just, you know, um, like who really cares about it? So I, I, you know what I mean? It's not, it's filler for me. I don't know. I could be wrong. Mike, is there something I'm missing here? Go ahead. Um, I, I kind of thought it was one, one more interesting song on, on the CD in a way, because, because it reminded me of, uh, the, the, the guns track is strange from the illusion record. You know, it, it's, um, you know, granted it's a little draining on the listener and it's, you know, but, uh, I, again, I think that the hidden beauty in this record are, are the chord changes that are, that are happening, you know. Uh, they're not typically what we would consider Guns N' Roses chord changes. They're, they're very piano-esque in a way, you know, like piano players play in a certain way that guitar players just do not play, you know, unless you're Neil Sean. You can do both of those. You can play you know, piano and guitar and you're, you're badass. But that's what I find interesting about this record is 
you know, if you if you sat down and said, I, I'm going to play along with this song on the guitar, it, it's, it requires a bit more, you know, than just playing, you know, bar chords and power chords and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I dig the tune. I think it's, again, one, probably one of my favorites on the record, but, uh, you know, again, because it reminds me of, you know, other things that I've heard before, particularly from Guns, which would be, you know, a, a strange from the original record. And yeah, I think the me- the melodies are strong. The melodies are strong too. And I think yeah. that that outro vocal is classic. Actually, it's great. It's full. It's it, it's you know, tons of high end you know vocal approaches that they're like badass. You know, like who does that? <laughs> who can who can do that accent? You know, it's great. Yeah, um, but I mean, lyrically, it's ultimately him just obsessing about another relationship that's where she done him wrong (laughs) and and you know after a while i mean he kind of keeps going back to this that same general subject and and there's only so many times you can sort of hear him complain about how this wild rock and roll woman was then in a relationship with him and behaved like a wild rock and roll woman and did things that he didn't like and you know now he thinks she's a prostitute and a whore and can't look at her the same way, but he still loves her. And, you know, I mean, like yeah. at a certain point, you're like, good God, man, just get over it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're an adult now. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Catcher in the Rye. Okay. So this uh, song actually to me is the most interesting as someone who has like taught the book Catcher in the Rye like three times, I think, and read it probably like five or whatever. So first off, I wrote down, it's got a nice little uh, Tommy Stinson bass line thing going there. But uh, there's even sort of this weird yes sounding part in the middle, another one of their musical in- interludes. Um, but then I realized that this isn't necessary. It's not based on the book. It's based on the song that the book is based on which is if uh, the, I think is Robert Burns or something wrote a sort of a Scottish folk song about if a body catch a body, it's about like someone stopping. I mean, it means you're stopping people from, you're in the rye and you're stopping people from running over this cliff and dying is basically the, the, the story. Okay, so, right, which is the title, yeah, where they get the title for the, right, the novel. So you're the you're person, trying to save people from destroying themselves right, and going on the body catch path. a body running through the rye, and it's a um, and it's it's an allegory. Is that the right word? I guess it's an allegory for people losing their innocence. You know what I mean? People going off and you know destroying themselves, doing something stupid. So. Um, Again, he vagues up the lyrics so much <laughs> that there's even some line in it about getting a gun, which I'm like, mm-hmm. there's no gun in the original. So I looked up the old folk song and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's no gun in the freaking folk song. You know what I mean? Like, I don't Okay, let me, what... let me help you out. All right. <laughs> yeah. This song is actually about the novel, not the song that. Well, then that's bullshit the because. Right. Well, it's about, you know, but Holden never talks about getting a gun. Okay. But here, let me give you context. Okay. No, because I'm really pissed off because he doesn't mention anything. No, he doesn't fucking mention anything that makes it about the novel. There's no lyrical anything 
that says anything about the fucking novel. Not once. Well, it is the title of the song, but I mean, what? it's the title yeah, of the, the song. Title of the song, but again, <laughs> lyrically, he doesn't mention. There's nothing about. There's no fucking red hats. There's no. These people are posers. Get away from him, meaning the guy that molests him or whatever. Or the English teacher that tries to fuck him. What? I don't know. Go ahead. Tell me. And, okay. Well, Ruin my all my research on this. And this clearly, and this right. clearly has nothing to do with the, the assassination, assassination of John Lennon, right? It does oh. have to do with this assassination. Right. <laughs> I, I just thought to bring it up. All right. Are you kidding me? Okay. No, oh, okay. Yeah, so, here we go. So, <laughs> Mark David Chapman. Oh, that's right. He read uh, who assassinated yeah, yeah, John yeah, Lennon, yeah, yeah. Okay. cited the Catcher in the Rye as an, a major influence on him. Yeah. Okay. And so, Axel was taking the exact opposite side of the argument that he took in Shackler's Revenge, Ooh. saying that maybe this isn't a book that should be taught to uh, America's youth because there is something about it that seems to speak to disturbed individuals and set them off on, you know, potentially dangerous paths then now fuck axel rose because that doesn't make any sense the book is has nothing to do with it at the end the, he turns himself around if anybody actually reads the book sorry go in go ahead. well I, i'm just gonna say i i do think it, it speaks to how myopic axel rose is that in one song he's basically saying you know it's absurd of you to blame my song on this oh. lunatic that went out and killed somebody he goes on the other hand this book that has inspired somebody to kill a rock star yeah eh, maybe we shouldn't be you know okay. teaching well, this book look, okay i'll tell you the story all right i'm teaching i'm teaching an after school <laughs> class for all these kids that failed um that failed 10th grade english okay okay and i'm like I don't care what you do. We have to find a novel and I, we got to read it and I got to teach it to you and you got to take, and then you got to write a paper on it. And we have like 10 weeks to do this. Let's, or whatever, 10 sessions to do this. Let's go down to the book room and find a book that you want to read. Okay. So we go into the giant Brashear high school book room and I'm, and they're all the books that are not being taught in the school. It's all, you know, um, the ones on hold to be recycled through or whatever. So first I'm like, okay, you guys are all sort of athletes. Do you want to do the, the loneliness of the long distance runner? And they're like, no. And the one kid picks up the catcher in the rye and says, this book tells people to kill other people, doesn't it? And I was like, you want to find out? <laughs> and that's how I got them to read Catcher in the Rye. And it was, it's honestly one of my best sessions because it was all fucking kids that had failed English. You know what I mean? And they all killed it. They loved it. And I was thinking, you guys are going to hate this because you're all, you know, Yinzers from the South side. How are you going to relate to this like prep school, whatever? And they tore that book up. They loved it. Like they really, really enjoyed it because it's plain English. You know what I mean? It's not like really hard to read and um, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, whatever. Fuck Axel Rose then. Yeah. But it is, if you think about it, it is kind of an odd book to be so commonly taught to the youth of America, because it is kind of about a guy who, as John Lennon would say, um, you know, got, gets off the merry-go-round, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and questions everything about society and, you know, to society becomes such a loser and, and a fuck-up. Um, 
in trying to find himself. You know, I'm not saying that that's no. a bad thing that we should be, we shouldn't be teaching it. I'm just saying that, you know, in, in some ways, it is a very subversive book. That's the whole point. That's why it's so well taught to high school kids, because that's where high school kids are at. And then if you actually read the book and your teacher knows how to teach it, you realize that at the end, he takes his red hat off, even, you know, which is his symbolism for being a, you know, a disgruntled youth, a hunter, you know, he takes off his hat and he realizes that it's going to be, you know, that he's got to start to conform. Like it's not what he's doing is, is he's, you know, this is just what happens. He realizes, you know what I mean? That all of his feelings before this weren't going to help him anymore for the rest of his life. And that the whole book is about that sort of turnaround. And so you could get, I mean, you could, the Bible tells people to kill people, whatever. Yeah. And I and really I, freaking hate this album. And I yeah. think that that's, that's a very rock and roll theme, right? Is that yeah. at a certain point when you become a teenager, the things um, that you have been taught about life and, and how life works and what life is no longer serve you. And you have to figure some things out for yourself. And, you know, I mean, certainly Ozzy and Dio have gotten a lot of mileage yeah. out of that kind of lyrical theme. You know, yeah. the people who have crippled you, you want to see them burn, you know, all that kind of stuff is very catcher in the rye. So it's not like this book is, is presenting themes that rock and roll by itself wasn't presenting either. Yeah, and too, yeah, yeah. if you're going to sell that kind of story, then do it over like a cool Stonesy intro at the beginning. Kind of sounds like Beast of Burden, you know. It, there's a cool like Stratocaster tone. If you do that, then you have a good foundation. You know, <laughs> and I think this. Song... I thought it'd be better than that because I couldn't find anything in the book, anything in the song that referenced the book at all. And then, of course, I forgot. You know, it's the crazy shock thing that Axel always goes for. Yeah, check out the, what's the movie, uh, Chapter Twenty Nine, uh, the movie they did on uh, Chapman. You know, but either way, it, it's it, you know, I think the redeeming factor with the song is is the chord changes and, and you know the, the tones. You know, if you want to get into the, the lyric content, so be it. But uh, you know, you know, also too, I saw a, a friend of mine uh, that I played in a band with. He sent me a thing a couple of days ago where it's like you know. It's the same where like a bunch of guys sitting around saying, hey, why can't I write a hit? And they, they say, well, you, you've not written like, you know, the four chord, you know, song. And think of songs like uh, Don't Stop Believing. Like they go through like tons of hits that all have that same chord structure. This song has a four chord song structure. So you, you, you mm. yeah. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. You, you, you look up a line of tone. It's the funniest thing because it's so true. Like it's almost like the blueprint for how to achieve success in terms of writing songs. If you, U2 does it, Journey did it, like tons of bands have done it. It's, you know, not the most, you know, respectable way to do things, but it, it's been done and I, this, this, this song has that. It's so funny that you say that. This is kind of going off on a tangent, but I was just talking to a friend of mine that was in a band that was signed to Capitol Records, and he was talking to me about how frustrating it was that when it came time for them to make their first record, they were given these very specific dictates 
from the the A&R guy and the record company about like, okay, this needs to be one, four, five. You need to get to the chorus within 30 seconds. You can't have, you know, I don't want any more than three to four guitar, you know, parts of this song. And, you know, like we have to, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it was so mapped out for them and so structured and so completely different than the material that had gotten them signed to this deal with capital that, you know, there was a part of them that was saying like, well, yeah, we can write according to this very specific formula Formula. that is used in pop music. But if you wanted a band that was like that, why did you even bother to sign us? Cause that's not what we've been doing up until this point, you know? So yeah, it is interesting how, how, uh, how specific during certain eras the record company has apparently gotten with that. Yeah, and also too, that's why I think it's been mentioned that record companies will like you know bring on those bands and sort of tie them up and set them aside and sort of take them out of the loop, you know, put them on the shelf so they're out of the way, so they're not competing with other you know artists you know that are having success. You know, you never know either way. But you know, still at the same time, it didn't stop Journey, it didn't stop you two, and you know, they they made it so. You can do it too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Scrapped. Uh, I like the a- acapella opening. Uh, the 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 riff is actually kind of rocking, and I like the sort of like AO stuff at the beginning. Um, I put down churchy acapella open. That's that's actually the one thing that really stood out to me. So go ahead, Mike. What do you think? <laughs> I do like the intro, but for me, the intro reminded me of uh, the the beginning of uh, the Caddyshack movie. Uh, Kenny Loggins, I'm all right in a way, you know. <laughs> that's that's what I heard. Yeah, you know, the, oh, there's those weird like sort of cathedral like you know chorus like vocals and stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Um, okay. But then then it launches launches into like this uh, Motley Crue Caraba airy um, verse riffs that are that are badass in a way, you know. They're, and then it goes into like the, you know, the solo. Um, it sounds like uh, Bruce Kulick kind of uh, Carnival Souls Union era guitar solo. Yeah, you know, you know uh, it's kind of rocking. I dig it. Um, you know, I, I'd say it's probably one of better tunes on, on the CD. Yeah, it's the one song that can really kind of be considered a real rock anthem mm-hmm. on on the record. And I, you know, I think there there's some there's some cool lyrics um, in terms of you know you're worth more than they tell you i'm here to tell you you're worth more yeah. than they tell you yeah um that's a cool line you know i i think part of it is he's writing from the perspective of being a manic depressive mm-hmm. uh <clears throat> so you know he he jetays back and forth between feeling very vulnerable and insecure to feeling uh unstoppable and unconquerable and i think as much as rock stars get uh criticized for having big egos and whatnot. I think that's only partially true. I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of them share traits uh, in their creativity of of the manic depressive. So, you know, they go from either thinking I am the worst fraud in the world and I suck and I'm terrible and I'm a charlatan and I don't deserve any of this to, you know, I am great. This is awesome. I am a rock god and there is, you know, nothing, nobody can do this better than I can. And I think this song kind of captures that dichotomy in that spirit. Yeah, I, I agree. Also, too, with you know, you know, obviously artists and stuff. And sometimes when they're on stage, they're the most, you know, 
natural. They, they feel the most comfortable with themselves when they're on stage and doing what they do. But you know, the rest of the day, you know, it's a terrible thing. You know, it's like, you know, ah, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's a thing. Good point. Okay. Riyadh and uh, Riyadh, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Riyadh yeah. and the Bedouins. Uh, I actually, um, actually, this was kind of my favorite song because I did the research on it because I spent all that time looking up the uh, shit about Catching the Rye, which I'm not completely <laughs> disappointed in. Um, but this is, I guess, so I found out that this song is apparently about Axel's former brother-in-law who was like just this either crazy guy who had all these crazy stories or in fact was um like a, a basically a compulsive liar so it actually made it kind of a an interesting song um i like the again it's got a chaotic uh guitar solo in it that i kind of got again not really hearing I keep wanting to hear Tommy in this, but is, there's no Tommy in anywhere in this album. You know, I can't hear him at all. It's really annoying. So, you know, um, I found it interesting title wise and the, the subject matter was kind of interesting, but again, he's so fucking vague on his lyrics that it's mm -hmm. like, it could be about anything. So I, you know, doing the research is what made it actually be something I could understand, not actually listening to the song. So I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Uh, you know, for me, I think um, when I heard the song, I thought, man, this reminds me of something else. And if you check out the song on the uh, Slash Sacred uh, CD, it's a song called Monkey Shout. It's got the same kind of riff. It's almost like they said, we're going to do a song like that, you know, which was released mm -hmm. in like 95. You know? <laughs> so it was like years prior to this album coming out. Um, but it's almost like the blueprint of, of, of this song in a way. We'll check it out. It's really interesting to, check, you know, to, to hear. But, uh, I, you know, the intro is kind of cool. It's kind of like cinematic. It reminds me of like a science fiction movie in a way. And I like the, you know, chucka chucka guitar that, you know, like Eagles Joe Walsh would do. And the verse is powerful and stuff. But, you know, again, the vocals just sound so edited and so processed that, you know, it just seems so unnatural in that way. It, Again, if, if they would re-record this record in more of a natural way, it would probably come across in a better way. Yeah, if I, if you don't research who Riyadh is in Axel's personal life, I don't know that I, you know, there's any way to relate to what he's talking about in this song at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it, it's okay. Um, it's kind of theatrical and, and grandiose and kind of movie soundtrack-ish mm -hmm. um but uh you know whether Riyadh was this weapons dealer that you know had his hand in uh creating wars and chaos and motivating uh the world to pull its levers as it did or whether he was just a crazy guy I mean that is an interesting subject matter but I I you know I Aside from the name in the song, I don't know that Axel really gets across that is what he's talking about. No, he doesn't at all. You had to, I had to actually look it up. Again, which, just... which goes back to the point of the whole thing with this discussion. It's like, why make the listener work that hard? Yeah. You know? I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, I mean, course, you, you know, if, 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 
appetite it had a song called Riyadh and the Bedouins on it. Like people would have gone like, what the hell is that? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it is, um, again, what we talked about spending so much time on these songs that he's probably con completely convinced that everybody understands what they're about because he's been living with these songs for so long. You know what I mean? That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. we've also discussed too, like you know, the sort of you know, you know, you know, clubhouse sort of you know lyrics like on uh, pretty tied up. Like you know, you can have like this inside dialogue, and you can have like you know the inside joke kind of thing happening. But like to the rest of the world, they don't get that. They're never going to get it. And if you have to explain that, then you're you're failing as a songwriter. You know, the song should sell itself. You don't need to. If I if I if I need to research your song and understand what you're talking about, <laughs> then you know you're in the wrong business. Now, okay, uh, just to play devil's advocate here, mm -hmm. there there is a theory of creativity and 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 writing that says that you can give people a hint of what you're talking about, and you don't necessarily have to explain yourself so thoroughly and leave it open to people's interpretation so that they can take the part that they can relate to from their own life and and make it a personal song for them. Mm -hmm. That is an approach to songwriting. But again, I don't see anybody saying, you know, Riyadh and the Bedouins, <laughs> like, yeah, I can relate to that. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll just, you know, chalk my personal experiences up to being somehow related in this song. I mean, I, you know, yeah. maybe if you're a Bedouin, you, you might, perhaps, I don't know. What is a Bedouin exactly? And, and, and sure. how many are them? No, man, and they desert yeah. right oh, right so maybe the desert nomads got something more out of this song than we did i don't know and they buy a lot of know. cds by the way so <laughs> <laughs> teeth are blue from eating so much garlic apparently is that a thing that's a thing oh. wow glad i don't like garlic all right yeah the stupid stuff i know about bedouins yeah, this oh, is an educational podcast Okay. All right. Sorry. Uh, this is filler. I called this, this is his song about fair weather fans. That's about it. So go, Mike, what do you think? It's, it's straight up filler. Just, it was, it was too ballady and kind of silly. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought the intro was kind of like Beatles-ish and Pink Floyd-ish in a way. And, you know, that, that I found interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, well, yeah, I mean, it, the vocal mix is, is cool in a way because it's kind of atmospheric and it's cool and it's fun to listen to. And um, you know, to me, it's kind of also a little, you know more like classic GNR-like in a way in terms of, of the mix and stuff. But uh, overall, again, this song and much like the rest of the records, there's no uplift. You know, it, it's very, it, it's an intense listen. You know, it's not the kind of thing you put on and, and relax and you know, have a you know, cup of coffee or whatever, or tea or beer or whatever. Yeah, I, I don't see any young rock kid listening to this album and go, man, I hope I, I get to, you know, grow up and, and be a rock star like Axl Rose, because he seems like a miserable son of a bitch. Yeah. I mean, he seems so unhappy about everything, right? I mean, like from the women in his life to, and again, could this be about Fairweather fans? Yeah. Could it be about ex-band members? Yeah. yeah. Could it be about the the media? Yeah. All of the above or any of that? Sure. I mean, people, you know, that have, are dragging him down and, and whatnot, but like, 
man i mean like it's not like he has a persecution complex and at a certain point you're like yeah but you're a rich famous rock star man like i mean i get the fact that life isn't perfect but come on yeah you know? yeah it's like yeah times is hot you know, <laughs> you, know <laughs> you can sing you know like hendrix said like you can sing a lot of blues and you're worried about money and stuff you know hendrix didn't you know sound like negative or you know depressed in a way you know this guy but even like you know i mentioned pink floyd like roger waters one of those guys too where he's always got that kind of like edgy vibe with writing his songs but he delivers it in a way that's you, you can go either way with it you know with with axel it's you, you kind of you feel like you're buying this guy's you know dress yeah yeah huh. irs all right literally wrote whatever because i thought it would be a more interesting song and it wasn't seemed like he was just running irs and fbi couldn't understand what it was about didn't really rock so it it means nothing this is straight up filler to me good mike your thoughts um again i just think that you, you can add so many loops and effects to a song and you know at the bottom line is if you, a good song can be played on acoustic guitar and i think they start out that way with the song but um you know you kind of cloud that up with you know effects and loops and stuff and it's you know, again, I would say re-record this album today and it'll probably be more presentable in a way, more acceptable. You know, you just kind of, you know, you don't need to disguise a great song or you know, good chord change with a bunch of effects. It's, it's, it's like padding in a way. And, you know, but to me, the takeaway with this song too is the bridge. You remind me of like um, a song like you know, Chicago, uh, a band like Chicago or Bread would do in a way, and more of like a '70s soft rock kind of thing. You know, which. I dig, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of that kind of music too, but, uh, you know, that's, that's all I can take out of it in, in, in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, if anything, you know, the song kind of has a certain self-aware sense of humor about it when you're at the end of a relationship and it's the end because the person you're in the relationship no longer wants to be in a relationship with you. There's really ultimately nothing that you can do uh, except in the relationship and, you know, mm -hmm. but of course that, that realization itself is incredibly frustrating. And so, you know, you've got Axel saying, well, I'm going to call the president and yeah. get a uh, private eye and call the IRS and, and, you know, the CIA and make a federal case. And, you know, but at some level he realizes, you know, he can, he, with all the bluster in the world, even him being a rich and famous rock star can't force somebody to continue to be in a relationship with him. So, you know, I guess from that perspective, it's kind of interesting. But again, lyrically, it's the same theme we keep coming back to again and again and again on this record. And there's no real new insight into it, aside from the fact that Axel continues to be unhappy and frustrated with his romantic life. Um, yeah. Madagascar. Uh... Axl Rose has got a pretty big set of brass balls. Uh, the, the horns are nice, generic lyrics, but that whole bit where he's literally remixing Martin Luther King. Um, although- Well, to be fair, Martin Luther King gets songwriting credit yes. on this record yeah. because the, the family of Martin Luther King decided they were not going to let him sample that much of his speeches without getting songwriting credit. Uh, okay, well, that's good. The most interesting part of the song is that sort of weird, um, you know, thing, that bridge part with all the different spoken, you know, the Martin Luther King speech and that kind of stuff that I found to be the most interesting part. 
Um, but it, nothing else really stood out to me. Again, it sounded really processed. Like Mike keeps saying, it sounds very processed. It doesn't have a lot of, you know, soul to it, I guess is the best way to put it. And then it's definitely weird that he, you know, I mean, it's not as, it's not as, um, as a poor step as Motley Crue's constant trying to write anti-racist songs. Um, you know what I mean? Those, those usually. Oh, see, I think that was a great step. I think they should have done more of that. What, Molly <laughs> Cruz should have? Yeah. I think, fight, I think Fight for Your Rights was a step in the right direction for them. I, I just think they didn't pull it, quite pull it off. Right, yeah, it was kind of clunky. Okay. So this one definitely doesn't even stand up to that, is what I'm saying. So, Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, sorry, like, you know, Really good songwriters don't need to you know, draw in a bunch of you know narrative or you know recordings of you know some other person that's done a speech you know, that was you know well known in a way. It, it kind of takes away from you know the song. It's like, come on, man, you write a good song on your own. You let it be a standalone thing. You don't need to bring in a bunch of you know recordings of you know a well known speech to, to, to try to like reinforce you know the point you're trying to make. You know what I mean? I don't know. I, you kind of lose me in that way because it's like I want to hear. My favorite artists, you know, give me what they do. I don't want to hear them write a song and then insert some sort of narrative or recording, and I'm supposed to be impressed by the fact that you know they admire that person as well. You know, I, mean, I don't know. I, I'm a bare bones kind of guy when it comes to songs. You know, I've always been that way. Yeah. Yeah. Also, the the, the sampling of the what. What, 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 you know, we've got here is like, you know, it's kind yeah. Of, yeah, I know. What is that? Yeah. It's, it's thing from obviously cool the same Luke. sample yeah. from Cool Hand Luke from Civil War. And yeah, um, I have to read you guys this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody, the title of the song, along with the lyrics in the chorus, draw a parallel with the island of Madagascar off the coast of Eastern Africa and a general feeling of being outcast from the society at large. The lyrics are a commentary on hope and managing seamlessly hopeless situations. The sampled quotes drive the point home from various real life or movie plot perspectives, the main message clearly being self-reliance and the importance of not listening to the naysayers. Okay. okay. Maybe I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I can't think of any other reason why the song is called Madagascar. And yes, Madagascar is uh, an island. So I guess, you know, you, you, you could argue that he's using that as some sort of metaphor. Um, I, I do pick up on the fact that he, he's kind of talking about um, the difficulty of maintaining his idealistic beliefs in, in terms of peace and brotherhood, uh, when it also seems like no matter what you do or how much you protest, nothing uh, makes any change or any difference in the world, you know? And I think that's kind of what this song is about. And I think, you know, certainly a lot of people were feeling that way and continue to feel that way uh, to this, this very day. But, you know, it's it's kind of the son of or daughter song of uh or sister song of civil war mm -hmm. and i think civil war is a much more effective song i agree yeah, agreed i agree yeah good point okay <laughs> next this i love literally just put the word ug at this point, I was so sick of listening to this album that I literally had to stop. I had to, I had, I had, well, no, what I had done is I had realized, like, I had listened to it once when we decided we were going to do it. 
And then I hadn't listened to it again because it was like, it was literally like homework and I just didn't have time to listen to it. Or when I would listen to it, I just couldn't concentrate on it or even pay any attention to it. So I sat down last night and started listening to it and writing down my thoughts to each song um, to get through it. And I had to do it. I did it like before dinner, then a little bit after dinner. And then I did a little bit today. And by this point, I was like, I can't believe there's this album is this long. Like, why is there even this song on here? So I, I just wrote the word "ug" next to it, and was really just wanted to get out of the, turn it off, and somehow call one of you guys and say like, I can't do it. You do it without me. <laughs> Funny. So that's it. That's as far as I got. You guys, Mike, tell me what's wrong. Oh, well, I will say this, you know, to sort of you know, bolster what you're saying, John, about, you know, the length of the records. You know, it's only like, what, 14 songs? Uh, but for some yeah. reason, when you put on the Illusion records, they go by faster and they're much more enjoyable in that way. You know, they, it's this is more of an intense listen. And <laughs> my takeaway with this whole record overall is, in this song too, is... Um, Again, the chord changes. You know, the, the piano intro is cool, and the melody reminds me of Queen and you know early Alice Cooper when you know Alice was doing more ballad kind of stuff. Um, I think the vocals in the verse are busy, you know. But then also they go this crazy, like you know, almost like winger red beach, you know, guitar solo kind of tone. It, it's it, it's pulling from all kinds of angles in a way. Uh, but again, I think really the beauty of this record, if you want to call it that, is is it, it, there are certain parts of these these songs that are well written. The, the chord changes are cool. Um, there, there is you know some some good tone in terms of guitar playing and stuff. If you want to delve into it and and, and look for it, you know you're not going to find it straight away. But um, if you put in the time, you'll get that. But you have to work for it in a way. Yeah, and a lot of the melodies are really strong mm -hmm. and well thought out and and much more sophisticated than anything he's done before. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, he's also just he's 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 kind of a one note thing lyrically where he's the disillusioned romantic who is pining away pathetically for this woman or women that have broken his heart. And, you know, like there's only so much of it you can listen to, like, you know, from anybody before you just go like, you know, I don't know, man, like get back on that horse and get out back out there and try to meet somebody new because right, yeah. clearly this is not working for you. I mean, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Uh. Okay. Final song prostitute. I thought it was going to be a lot more interesting. It sounds like nineties alt rock. Um, again, it's lyrically the title of the song is uh, shocking. So you, I thought it would be a lot more, interesting but it really wasn't again lyrics too vague music washed right over me nothing stood out you know what i mean so again another like and again at this point i'm like i can't believe there's more to this so i just wanted the record to end so go ahead your uh your thought mike yeah i'm, I'm gonna always try to come in from the positive side um i think the things that you know i shouldn't say i think the things i like about the song are the uh the underappreciated things, which are some of the chord changes. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Rattle and Hum, uh, U2 era kind of songwriting, you know, where, where they were kind of like, you know, finding their way after the Joshua Tree thing and, you know, trying to decide they're going to do like a you know, roots rock thing or a country thing or whatever, you know, the, the, to me, again, the, the, 
from a musician standpoint, the chord changes again in these chord in, in these songs for the thing to, to delve into. You know, you know, the, the, the common man is not going to find it interesting. But for me, I find it interesting. And it, I think when this album came out, I I really didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I listened to it a couple of times and thought, okay, this on the shelf, you know, done. Because I was also listening to a lot of that stuff that was coming out prior, like, you know, the Slash of Snake Pit records I thought were, were cool. The Gilby Clark records were cool. The Izzy Stradlin records were cool. This just seemed like a whole different thing. It seemed like miles away from what those guys were doing. Like, those guys sounded more like Uncle Roses than this record sounded like Uncle Roses. And I was into that because it sounded more like the Stones, it sounded like Aerosmith, it sounded punk rock. You know, this was overproduced and bombastic in a way, you know, and, but let's do it again. These days, you know, if, if you want to sit down and you know, put the record on and you try to learn these chord changes, then you'll come away with something that you, you probably develop and use on your own as a songwriter in a way, you know, but I think the things that sort of play this record are the production, the loop, the samples, you know, the, the you know, the, the narrative is inserted. Like those are the things that take away. That's why I say if they re-record this record now, with a more modern approach, it'd be more of an organic sounding record. It might come across in a better way. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, this is this one that they have kind of an orchestral thing going on in part of this. Mm -hmm. Is that is that the one? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's interesting the way that they incorporate the the orchestral score into it. Um, but again, what is he really talking about? I mean, the pressure of having to you know compromise himself artistically i mean you know <laughs> nobody has had greater freedom to make a rock record in the history of rock records than axel had making this record so for him to complain about like oh you want me to compromise myself i mean well you know you've had 15 years man like i yeah and how many, right, how many exactly. millions of dollars you know in order to have that yeah, yeah. okay no problem 13 million dollars <laughs> later i mean you know a case could be made that you've been given enough rope to hang yourself and do it your own way and and you know huh, i don't know um one thing that i can say positive about this record is that um i think it was mastered by bob clearmountain mm -hmm. And Bob apparently did three mixes and uh, three mastering mixes and the least compressed, least elevated uh, mix was the one that Guns N' Roses, meaning Axel, chose, hmm. which is interesting because this was right at the height of the mastering volume wars, which oh. ironically enough, yeah. Guns N' Roses kicked off by mastering Appetite for Destruction at a slightly higher than standard level, as was common in the industry at the time. And it resulted in a lot of albums being terribly mastered, where it oh. just looks like a brick wall and they are just, you know, compressing the hell out of everything um, and, and, and clipping the audio. And so sonically overall i think this album sounds very balanced because mm. it is it's not over compressed yeah which is uh nice you know <laughs> no i agree it, it, you know it, again it, if you put it on it does sound good but you know once you get into it like you know i don't know they're just it's almost like there's so much drama to the chord changes which i love you know one of my favorite things about you know the band journey is they, they write some really great songs with like really great dramatic chord changes but you've got to be ready to 
you know, sit down and, and dig that, you know, and, and delve into that. But, you know, it's not a, a fun experience, you know, it's, but, you know, then again, too, if you're going to, you know, write a good song with chord changes and it's going to sound good, well, then that's fine. But, like, lyrically, where does it go? This album's all over the place. It's, it's, it just sounds like, it, much like, almost like the, the Motley Crue, Karabi era stuff, like, it's the same name, but a different band. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know, when you pick up this, you know, record, you know, at Walmart or wherever it came out or Best Buy, like, really, this is Guns N' Roses? Other than the voice, I'm not really hearing it. <laughs> or otherwise, yeah. there's some guys that kind of sound like Slash. You know, I'm hearing some wah-wah guitar and some cool guitar tones here and there. But, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, and then again, I would, you know, I would, would, would not want to be in this position where, you know, I had all that success and all of a sudden this record comes out and then it does what it does. Well, the, the interesting thing is, is I remember there was some sort of like um, some sort of TV show that Jimmy Fallon was announcing. And I think it was like a New Year's Eve rocking something. And I was uh, and he gets up on stage and he's like, guys, this is like such an honor. I can't believe I'm actually getting to say this. But up next is guns. And then they cut out the fucking roses. And I'm like, what? The, that's not guns and roses. You know what I mean? Like that's Axel and some other dudes. And it just seems so, you know, like how were people, you know what I mean? Like, do we, I don't consider this a Guns N' Roses album, really. It's just an Axel album. But I don't know. Yeah. And again, I think the, the main problem too is that these are, these songs are all such studio creations that like, if I went and saw Guns N' Roses today and they didn't play a single song off this album, I wouldn't go, oh man, I wish they'd played, you know, one of those songs from Chinese Democracy. Like that really ruined the concert for me that they didn't play it. I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather see them play a Double Revolver song than a song off this record, but you know. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, not to be on a down note, I mean, you can't accuse Axl Rose of trying to remake appetite although he literally did remake appetite he just never <laughs> released it but you know what i'm saying yeah he didn't try to write another album in that style and repeat himself and you know like mm. this is a very different album than appetite or use your illusion or anything else that they've done so he does continue to grow and evolve in a more strange and esoteric and perhaps completely unrelatable way to the common man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but I, I should probably reinforce you know, what I said earlier, if it sounds negative at all about this record, you know, at least he had that creative freedom, you know, and he was developing as an artist and, you know, embraced that. That's cool. You know, I think Queen as a band did that. Some of my favorite songs on Queen records are the songs that never singles, you know, they were adventurous songs, yeah. you know, they were well-written songs, a lot of great chord changes. You know, it takes a lot of, you know, guts to, to be able to, you know, take that creative challenge and do that, you know, right. whether or not that translates into commercial success is a whole different thing, you know, I mean, it's timing, it's, you know, you got the ear of the public or whatever, but, you know, what I'm trying to say is that even though I may sound somewhat critical of the record, I appreciate the fact that he's taking the challenge of being creative and, and diving into new areas as a songwriter. Yeah, and vocally he sounds as good if not better than ever yeah yeah it sounds like he record. got singing lessons or something somewhere in there yeah i mean the recording is 
top notch. The orchestration's top notch. The melodies are much better thought out than they were on some of the Use Your Illusion mm -hmm. songs. Um, so there's a lot. You could take any one song from this album and listen to it, and I think you could say, well, that's good. And I just think, you know, at a certain point, it's like a bunch of good songs that don't add up to anything beyond the fact that they're all pretty good. You know, it's like rich chocolate cake after a while. You just can't, you can't have any more of it because you're not getting anything new out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact, too, that they really kept accurate records of who played on, on the thing. If you look at the liner notes, man, there, there's some extremely detailed notes about who played what on this record. I mean, you know, that, you know, that, that, that's pretty amazing in my opinion, you know, because for God's sake, you know, as long as it took them to record this record and keep track of who did what, you know, that's, you know, good, good taking notes, good, good details, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> final, final note, have you guys heard the two new Guns N' Roses tracks? I'm kind of afraid to. I heard one of them. I didn't hear the second okay. one. Which one did you hear? Oh, I, I, oh, I forget. The one uh, Absurd? That was it, yeah. It, okay. And it didn't even sound like actual singing. It was a weird thing in my experience. You know? Yeah, yeah. And the, the new one, like what's called Hard School, I think, um, is a little bit more traditional uh, Guns N' Roses. But, I mean, I don't know. I, ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm of the school that even if – my favorite artists are incapable of producing anything nearly as good as they did at their epoch of what they were capable of. I still want to hear new stuff, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. like Ozzy will probably never record anything that is in the same ballpark as Black Sabbath's early records or the Randy Rhodes stuff, but I still want to hear new stuff because, you know, he can still sing and he can still write a decent melody and sometimes there's some cool stuff going on there and alice cooper can come up with some cool things and you know so like i'm i'm all for you know the current lineup of guns and roses trying to do new original material and i think it will be at least as good if not better than this ultimately because they're actually a real band again yeah absolutely great point so are they i mean they're officially back together again or whatever i mean well they've, they've been touring, touring with yeah. duff and slash and you know so yeah i mean do i wish that they had izzy as a songwriter on board or that they had steven adler for his feel absolutely i did yeah <laughs> you know but um so here's a question where do we go from here because this was as far as I sort of thought out this podcast. <laughs> hey. Um, hmm. I do have, I have one idea. All right. Which is maybe we should each choose one album that we think is a relatively unknown rock album that more people should know about. Oh, I, I think that for sure, because I've got tons. Yeah, I do. That, that was actually one of my original ideas, is that we each take a record. Well, I was going to say take a record that the other two may not have heard at all. Uh -huh. That too. Well, yeah. I know which mine, I know what mine's going to be. What is it? Okay. Uh, TSOL Hit and Run. Oh. I've heard that. Okay. I, I right. know you have. I, I've not heard <laughs> um, that, but I'm intrigued. Okay. Cool. I would do, Does do we have to stick, do we have to keep this metal? I mean, I would say... 
um, the replacements pleased to meet me. Okay. All right. Hmm, so all what right. we should, why don't we do TSOL hit and run first? Okay. And yeah. then we'll all listen to it and then we'll get our feedback on it. And then we'll do Mike, what's yours? You got an idea or you got, oh, I've got too many even mentioned. Yeah. Um, Cause I'm yeah. the king of like a obscure fun, you know, lost, you know, classic uh, rock records, but you know, I'll follow you guys lead and then I'll, 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 I'll beat you up later. With a, with a good one. <laughs> All right. Okay. So TSOL hit and run. TSOL would not be a bad band to do. They have, I mean, they date back to like forever ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to do their whole discussion. Do, <laughs> come on. You want to do property is theft. Come on, man. No, no, no. <laughs> No, but I, so all right, that'll that we'll do that for the next three weeks. We'll we'll choose an obscure, uh, rel, you know, relatively speaking, obscure, yeah. unknown rock record, and and uh, then by that time, hopefully, something will occur to us to keep this thing going. All right, sounds good. Looking forward to all it. Right. All right, guys. all right. Well, good to Take, see y'all. Likewise. Take care. Yep. Bye. Take care, guys.